Well, I, I know you got to see that picture, but we've actually had six baptisms in the last two weeks happening at different places. So that's really incredible. Uh, it's one of the things that we celebrate as a church. Uh, we had a couple at the youth group uh, kind of end of summer bash, and then those four that did it at their city group. Uh, typically, we do baptisms at the end of the month uh, up here, but there are some people, especially kids, that are like, I don't want to talk in front of everyone. And I get that. And here's the thing. Uh, that's an extra biblical requirement. You don't have to talk in front of everyone to be baptized. Uh, <laughs> some of you guys are like, yes. Um, we're trying to get more creative in how we do those, but then also just share with you the excitement that God is moving. He's working, and it's awesome. And we love new life in Jesus Christ. Also, um, as a people, in the midst of this sermon series, The Thread, we want to be people of the book. And so I know my group and a number of other city groups, actually the week before, uh, we, we look at the entire book of the Bible that we're looking at the next Sunday, kind of do a study on that, encourage each other, uh, use these Bible project videos. I'm going to give you an example of one today uh, to kind of get our minds around what this book of the Bible is actually saying. And so as much as it's about community and about living mission together, it's also about going deeper in our understanding of God and his word. And so I can't say enough good things about city groups. You should come. So would you pray with me as we dive into the book of Job? God, thank you uh, for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have now to study a book that's so close to many of our hearts. God, all of us, either have or will wrestle with the question, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? God, if you're in control, how come you let this happen in my life? God, we've all either been there or we will be there at some point. And so I thank you for how the book of Job gives us wisdom on how to live and helps us to answer these questions. Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me today, but would you, would you speak to every person listening? We ask in Christ's name, amen. So in the next three weeks, we're going to do a little mini-series on the three books of wisdom in the Hebrew Bible, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. These three books kind of cumulatively seek to answer the question, what is the good life? Is God good and just? How should one live in light of the many complexities of this life? And we're going to start in the book of Job uh, because it's actually one of the oldest books in our Bible. It's a challenging book that wrestles with the question of God's sovereignty and human suffering. Or to put it more plainly, where, where is God when bad things happen? Is God good and just when they do? Why does God allow it to take place? Kind of a roadmap for today. I'm going to read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then we're going to watch a, a six-minute video that kind of gives us an overview of the whole book of Job, and then in our remaining time, I'm just going to draw out five lessons that we learn and we can apply to our lives. Does this sound good? doesn't matter if it sounds good. That's what we're doing. <laughs> Why do I ask questions that I, you know, why don't you pick up your Bibles, Job chapter 1 and chapter hated. Good. I want something else. I'm a dad. I'm used to being hated. <sighs> oh, I kid. I love my kids. They're great. False. <laughs> uh, I think they're still sitting on the highway. So, uh, actually, here they come. All right, everybody turn around and make them look awkward. 
you do know, anytime I use my kids as an illustration and I don't ask them, I owe each a dollar. So that's going to cost me five bucks now. Job chapter one. Here we go. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not strike out your hand, or stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, 
a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for sin, skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. I would guess that none of us have had a day or two like Job. The big question that the book of Job forces us to wrestle with is this. Do I trust God in the midst of my suffering? When I suffer, when things don't go well, do I trust God in the midst of my suffering? Here's an overview video. I hope you enjoy. and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, Okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan? Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying 
just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst... But then in chapter 3, we find... ...still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals this devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person, and God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? 
Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. Hey, you guys, thank you for watching this video from the Bible. Now you gotta listen to me. Oh, the book of Job is both beautiful and maddening at the same time, isn't it? It's beautiful in that it allows us to enter into the questions with all of the emotion that only poetry and story can land in our heart. But then on the flip side, it doesn't actually give us the succinct and easy answer that we're actually seeking, does it? See, if we're being honest, the book of Job leaves us with as many or more questions than when we started, right? Because I think the biggest misnomer about the book is that it's actually going to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And the book of Job doesn't give us an answer so much as it gives us a person, God. And whether or not we are going to trust this God in the midst of our suffering So five lessons that we draw from the book of Job as a whole. The first is this. God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. Boy, that's shocking in its reality, isn't it? That's stark as we read this heart-wrenching tale of Job and all that happens. But isn't it fascinating that Job is never told or let in on what happens in the heavenly throne room in chapter 1 and 2? God never even begins to at least start an explanation of like, it was this big elaborate test, good job Job, you passed. Which makes us ask the question, why? Why doesn't God at least give him some modicum of meaning in, look at what you've done. Look at what happened. Because I think this book wants to hit us between the eyes with the reality that, that God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. Now, we might not like this, and it might give us this sense of cold, callous feeling when it comes to God, but it is the stark truth and logic of the book of Job. God is not ultimately accountable to his creation. We, as his creation, are accountable to him. Now, you could say that this particular way of viewing the world is pretty countercultural today, and you'd be right. See, whenever something bad happens to me, often the default posture of my heart is, What gives, God? I'm waiting for an answer. You got some explaining to do. And I think if we're honest, a lot of us, that's our immediate posture when something happens. But the Bible takes a different vantage point, doesn't it? That God is our creator and sustainer of everything. That he understands complexities that we couldn't even begin to grasp. And so we are very much out of our depth when we're asking him and putting him on the stand. In Romans chapter 9, the apostle Paul says, can the potter say, or can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? The answer being no. The potter has in his mind what he is doing. Some of these questions we have, and they're real, 
but they are above our pay grade. God doesn't once take the stand for cross-examination to give his defense. His defense is who he is in all of his glory and and grandeur. Now, this doesn't mean that God is calloused or doesn't care about human suffering, but it does mean that he is our sovereign creator over all things. He is in control. And that any time we venture into this space where we wrestle with our emotions and our heart, we need to do so with the proper posture, one of humility and reverence rather than, God, you owe me an explanation. Now, if that was all that the book of Job taught, it would just hit us right between the eyes and probably knock us out. It's not all, but it is the starting point. God does not answer to us, we answer to him. The second thing we see is that God is not scared of our emotion. In all of his wrestling, Job is counted as righteous. I mean, even, even though he, he gets things about God wrong and about his life wrong as he's on this emotional roller coaster trying to process through it, we see that Job wrestles with God and his emotions in the right way and God commends him for it. It's really important for us. It's good news today that God is not scared of your emotions. He created you physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally to feel and express emotions as a way to understand and know him even more. Now, I don't know exactly what you're going through today or what you might have to face this week that right now will completely blindside you. But I do know this. God isn't scared of your feelings. He's not scared of your emotions. He invites you to bring him all of your thoughts and emotions and questions to wrestle through. So then the question becomes, how do I do that well? How do I express my emotions in a way that is godly and healthy? You wrestle with that at all? When it comes to our emotions, we have a tendency to be in one of two extremes. We either ignore them, stuffing them deep down so that we don't have to feel, We're pretty good at that in northern Minnesota, right? But the problem when we do that is that they tend to come out sideways at the most inopportune time imaginable, don't they? And often on the people that we love the most. See, we stuff those emotions, but they're doing stuff whether or not we acknowledge them. And they often spill out in the worst time. On the other extreme, we often are driven by our emotions as if every emotion that we feel is a reliable driver of our behavior. It's not. Sometimes your feelings will betray you. We need to feel them. And so in a sense, all of our emotions are valid. But in a very other sense, they are not valid because sometimes our emotions don't help us to rightly interpret reality. So how do we experience them in all of their breadth and depth in a godly way? The book of Psalms in many ways is our guide. We looked at it last week, and we looked at more of a theologically dense passage in Psalm, but most of the book of Psalms is is godly people expressing the full gamut of human emotions to their God, but doing it in a way that God honors and welcomes. So whatever the human emotion is, you can probably find it in the book of Psalms. Some of them make us very uncomfortable, actually. And in many ways, they provide a guide for how do we express our emotions in a healthy way way. Job does this sometimes, and other times he doesn't. 
He's on this emotional roller coaster as he puts his faith in God, but then is accusing God in the very next statement. So let me just give you an example of how do you experience emotions in a godly way. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 42 and 43. It's this worship leader of Israel who's pouring out his heart to God, expressing his feelings and his wrestling to the Lord, and not just listening to himself in the inner dialogue, but he begins speaking to himself and telling himself the truth. Let me just give you a snippet or an an example of it. He says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's saying, I'm crying myself to sleep most of the nights. People mock me and they mock my God saying, your God doesn't care about you. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He says, in the midst of these anguishing times, I remember those moments when God was so real, when God was so vivid and there. In the middle of me pouring out my soul, I remember that moment in my life where I'm like, Yes, God, you're here. I recall that to mind. For him, it was leading worship. And then in verse 5, we see he doesn't just listen to himself. He begins talking to himself, diagnosing himself. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist brings his emotions and his feelings to the Lord, but he doesn't leave it at that. One of the reasons why this is my favorite is because he has to do it three times. There's three cycles, two in Psalm 42 and one in Psalm 43, meaning it's not a silver bullet. It's not a magic, oh, just do this and you'll be fine. It's often the ongoing coming to the Lord, wrestling through our emotions, speaking truth to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the goodness of God, and then doing it again, and then doing it again, and then doing it again until it takes He's reminding himself of the character of God. Guys, God made you to be emotional beings, spiritual beings, physical beings, mental beings. Feel your feelings. Validate those emotions, but do not be driven by them. Bring them to the Lord and let him sort them out. Job does this imperfectly, But he does it, and he's commended by God for doing that. So God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. God is not scared of our emotions, but invites us to feel them and bring them to him. Third, and if you miss everything else, make sure you get number three. The answer to the problem of suffering in the world isn't a proposition, but a person. This is where God lands. He says, Job, are you going to trust me or not? Here are my credentials. All of the things that baffle you, I know intimately and designed them. But this forces us to wrestle with, well, yeah, God is powerful and he's big, but he seems kind of detached here in Job, doesn't he? Like, well, Job, you're dealing with this, but this is who I am. You're going to have to trust me. I think if the only thing about suffering that the Bible spoke was the book of Job, we might rightly feel a little confused. 
We might rightly wonder, God, are you detached and divorced from human suffering? But the good news is that's not all the Bible says about God and his relationship to suffering. Actually, as we continue in the story and we see the Lord Jesus Christ, God, come into the world, we see that one of the very reasons that God comes into the world is to suffer. That that suffering and pain is not a philosophical idea that God simply looks at objectively, but it is something that he has experienced more than you and me, but he has overcome. We see this in Mark's gospel as the first eight chapters kind of answer the question, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And Peter makes this declaration when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the one. You're the one who is to come. And then at that point in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, the entire thing turns. And the question that they begin wrestling with is, why did he come? And immediately after we recognize who Jesus is, this is what Jesus says. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus is in part saying, the reason I have come into this world is to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and then rise again. Why? See, Jesus comes in and suffers not only to identify with our suffering, but even more to suffer the full effects and punishments for our sin and rejection of God. See, as good as Job was, he wasn't perfect. As good and righteous as you might be, you have broken God's laws. And so in many ways, Jesus had to come and suffer for you. But this also reminds us that in our deepest pain, in our deepest bout of confusion, we have a God who knows what it is to suffer. In fact, he suffered more than we have ever. If you've ever been betrayed in a relationship, you can feel alone and forsaken. But brothers and sisters, there is one who is truly forsaken from all so that you never would be. You might experience the sting and the grief and the loss of a child like Job did. But God has felt that intimately more acutely than you ever have. Why would he do that? Because he loves you and he wants you back. He wants to forgive your sin and restore relationship with you. Guys, we need to remember this in the midst of our deepest pain. When we wrestle with the question, do I trust God, it is not just a philosophical reality for us, but we need to be reminded that God is a sufferer with us. But that in his suffering, Jesus has overcome. See, what the Bible promises us in Christ is not simply temporary deliverance from suffering, but rather eternal redemption of our suffering. Restoration. The restoration of shalom and peace and healing that all of us long for. I don't know what you're going through right now, but God does. And he is near to the brokenhearted. And let me tell you this. You can trust him with your pain. 
You can trust him with whatever you're going through because he is so much bigger and greater and because he knows what it is to suffer. Even more than you do. But he is overcome. So God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. God is not scared of our emotions, but invites us to feel them and bring them to him. God is not detached or distant from human suffering, but has entered it in every way and has overcome. That's good news. Fourth, the last two are quick. Job's friends give us a beautiful and a horrible example of how to be a friend to someone in grief. We'll start with the good, and we'll end with the bad. They show us how to be an amazing friend at the end of chapter 2. We read in verse 11, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they, each, they came each from his own place. <clears throat> and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. If you ever have a friend going through something really hard, one of the very best gifts that you can give to them is to just sit with them in their grief. Just be with them. Be near. Cry with them. Grieve with them. Don't try to fix it or solve it or figure it out or be a happy talker of it's going to be great. Just be with them. And if you don't know how to comfort them with your words, then keep your mouth shut. The best thing that Job's friends did was shut up for seven days and just enter into his pain and his grief and join him in that. Some of you guys think, I don't know how to, to, to bring comfort and presence to people. I don't know what to say. Guys, there is no magic answer of what to say. Be with them as a human being and suffer with them. It's not until chapters 3 to 37 that they become the lousiest of friends in his grief when they try to figure it out and fix him. Now, I'm not saying that there's no time to, to speak wisdom or to give counsel or to help someone process. I'm just saying the way they did it was terrible. And God admits, you do not understand me. You have not represented me well. So, don't be Job's friends, but do be Job's friends. When people are struggling, be with them. Don't always try to fix it. Last, even though Job got some things wrong and had to repent and humble himself after being questioned by God, Job was more right than his stupid friends. And he served as a mediator between them and God. See, the three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, many Bible scholars say reflect the best of Near Eastern thinking in that day on how to understand God and suffering and sovereignty and justice. But what Job teaches over and over again is that their way of looking at the world was insufficient. It's too simplistic. It's not just A plus B equals C. There's more nuance to it than that. And at the end of the story, God rebukes them and Job is forced to intercede for them. 
Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did as the Lord commanded them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now often lost in this is what a beautiful picture of forgiveness Would you want to pray for your friends after that? I know it's your fault. That's why you're suffering. You must have done something wrong. See, one of the reasons why we don't preach verse by verse through the book of Job's is that there's 34 chapters of bad advice and misconstruing of who God is. So you can actually say exactly what the the intent of it is not, right? We need to be careful with the Bible. Look at Job's heart toward his friends, even after they had screwed up so bad. He prays for them. He offers the sacrifice, and God forgives them because of Job's prayer. In a unique way, Jesus does this for us as well, doesn't he? He is the truly righteous sufferer who doesn't just appear righteous, but is righteous, who must offer a sacrifice and mediate for his stupid friends. That's us. That's us. See, Job serves as this mediator for his friends. So too does Jesus not only become the sacrifice, but also the mediator who intercedes for us when we are foolish. The book of Job has much to teach us about God and suffering and ourselves, doesn't it? It teaches us that God doesn't answer to us, we answer to him. God is not scared of our emotions, but invites us to feel them and bring them to him. God is not detached and distant from our suffering, but entered it in every way and has overcome it. Shows us a way to be a friend to fellow sufferers. And it points us to Jesus, the one who is a true friend to us, even now interceding for us. Amen? I want to invite you back for the next two weeks as we look at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and their different take of wisdom on this life. They're meant to be read together. But I also want to invite you back on Wednesday, where we're going, to be, we're going to be showing a Job film. A pastor from the Twin Cities put the book of Job, the story of Job, to poetry. It's about 45 minutes long. We're going to show it at 6.30 on Wednesday night. There's going to be pastors and some city group leaders here that would love to pray with you. Maybe just sit with you, listen to what's going on in your life. But it's another way that we can enter into the story and wrestle through these issues and these emotions. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are powerful and that you will have victory over suffering. Thank you, God, that you are also near to us in the midst of suffering and you know. You are near to the brokenhearted. Jesus, you suffered more than we ever could and overcame. I pray that we would bring our emotions to you I pray that we would grieve well with one another as we go through the ups and downs and all arounds of life. God, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.